Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Horning and welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. Today we have Debbie Irving with us. Debbie, would you introduce yourself? Yeah, I am a white woman and I am a 2005, I was in the February session of the Hoffman Process in Rhode Island. Uh, Feels like forever ago and it feels like yesterday. And the turns my life has taken since Hoffman, I don't believe would have taken were it not for the Hoffman process. You remember the month and the location. What was your process like for you? What do you remember about it some 15 years later? You know, I what I remember it starts with the homework. I remember starting the homework and beginning to feel myself unraveling. And I started to have this, uh, one of the, the big issues in my life was hypochondria before I went in. And I became overwhelmingly anxious that I was going to get sick and not be able to go to the Hoffman process because the homework itself began this level of self-reflection that I'd never done before. And by the end of that process, man, I was floating and I had found myself and I, I had just reclaimed so many pieces of my humanity in that one week. And, and I had connected my own issues, obviously, you know, to the inherited patterns and, and begun to think about, um, my attitudes and behaviors as inherited patterns. That was incredibly powerful for me. And then, of course, came the, the rest of my life challenge to sort of, you know, hang on to that or, or rediscover. Get, I, at, at the end of Hoffman, I think for me, it set a bar for what life can feel like and who I can be. And I've been in, in pursuit of that um, sort of gently and persistently ever since. Wow. I, um, I'm struck by one of the things you said that Hoffman gave you was a reclaiming of your humanity. And, and I have to say that this powerful book that you wrote, Waking Up White, finishes a chapter called Reclaiming My Humanity. And um, tell me about what happened post-process in terms of the work you're doing, your racial justice work and the writing of this book, uh, Waking Up White, which was, I think, published in 2014. Yes, that's correct. Um, so how, how, how did you, what's the line like from uh, post-Hoffman process to racial justice work and published author? Well, I think it's important to state that I had a recurring vision starting about uh, halfway through the Hoffman process 
the, I had been watching the Olympics right up to the day I went, and I love the skating portion. And I kept having this vision of myself in this beautiful dress skating, and I was handing something out to people in the audience. And I was so full of love, and the people who were receiving it were so full of love. And at the end of the process, when everyone is stating their visions, you know, people had very specific visions. Like, I'm going to have incredible sex with my husband on our new kitchen countertop. And I'm thinking, all I can tell you is I'm, I'm, I'm on an ice rink. I'm skating and I'm handing something out and I don't know what any of it means. So um, I, what I decided to do was just take the feeling of that vision, which was this incredible, overwhelming love for other people and love for connecting with other people, um, like giving and receiving, just that that connection. And so I brought that feeling wherever I went, and I started to notice when that feeling rose in me and when that feeling dissipated in me. And that became a guide for me uh, of, of choices to make. Like, does this feel like a choice that's going to bring that feeling forward, or does this feel like something that's going to squash that? Am I going off my path? And uh, so I was an elementary school teacher at the time, and I ended up uh, following my heart at, to go to graduate school to become a, a teacher, uh, get my graduate degree in special education. And there was a course that was called Racial and Cultural Identities. And throughout that, I actually thought I was going to that class to learn about black and brown children and families so I could teach them better. And what happened was it was, I was told on the first day, this is a course where you're all going to be doing a six month deep dive into your own racial and cultural identity, which I didn't even know I had. And so as I went through that course, you know, I was exposed to uh, identity, ideas about how we form our identities. And in this, I'm bringing all of this kind of big heartedness that I had discovered at Hoffman to this understanding. And, And then I was, you know, I was a history major in college. I started learning history I had never learned. And I immediately connected to the human experience uh, of being uh, in the oppressor, in the oppressed group. And so I came out of it and I just, I was so overcome with the injustice in the United States, which I really hadn't understood the degree of it. And it wasn't just an intellectual exercise. I was, I was like pulsing. Um, My heart was hurting. My heart was so heavy. And so it felt to me the only way forward, the only way to heal my own heart was to jump headfirst into the work of uh, anti-racist learning and activism and tell my story. So you, you shared that part of what helped you is that realizing through the Hoffman process that in fact, we're, we have patterns that we inherit from mom and dad and that those are just patterns. And if we learn them, then we can unlearn them. And, and part of what I heard you say earlier is that that actually helped you do this uh, anti-racism work because if we learn patterns in family, well, then we can also learn patterns socially. Is that part of the connection you made? It's a huge part. And I would actually state it a little bit differently. The patterns we learn in our family are situated in the larger culture. And so uh, we are all being exposed to the patterns of whiteness, which are the cultural norms that come from, that we've inherited 
from, from England through colonial settler days. And we continue into this day. And there are patterns that undermine our best intentions. It has nothing to do with being a good person. For instance, uh, something I have suffered from and I still have to work on is I'm a bit of a workaholic. And so I have this incredible sense of be busy, uh, be productive, sense of urgency, be efficient. Well, I don't believe I was born that way. Um, my, My parents, my father was that way. And the larger culture the culture of whiteness is promoting that all the time. It's turning us human beings into machines that serve a, you know, a, a, a wealth and nation building project. And so I'm not just a hyped up, hyperactive person. I learned that from my parents and they learned it from their parents. And the reason all of us enact it and often get rewarded for it is because that's the bigger culture that we live in. And so when we talk about patterns, you know, once I'm able to name, ooh, those aren't just patterns of my family. Those are patterns of whiteness. Here's where the Hoffman training came in. I knew that if I wanted to settle into my body, be present, be more relational, which is crucial in the work of anti-racism, I had to have positive alternatives to each one of those negative inherited patterns. Ah, the the connection there to uh, the socialization in family, but the larger context of of that there's a there's a a through line, a thread of all these. um, But you know, I want to ask as I'm framing this question, I realize that so much of whiteness is its invisibility. I mean, the idea you mentioned of even being belonging to a race or having race. Why is whiteness so invisible to white people? Well, I think, you know, it's the, a lot of people use the analogy, the fish swimming in water. It sees everything but the water that it's swimming in. It's because it is so normalized. And the way we, uh, the way we're taught to say hello, the sets of questions we're asked to kind of break the ice at a social event, the way we relate to time, the way we, um, you know, the, the way we feel that we might be just individuals as opposed to connected to a larger system. Systems aren't pointed out to us. We're told we're rugged individuals. And so, um, you know, all of this is introduced to us when we're very, very young. And so it's all we know. It's, it's the first thing we know. Our parents model it for us. The larger society models it for us. And until someone says, you know, not every culture relates to time. You know, not every culture cares about punctuality the way we do. Not every, not every culture organize around, organizes around strict hierarchy the way we do. You know, not every culture avoids conflict. Many cultures uh, start very young teaching children how to navigate conflict with incredible conflict resolution uh, skills. So it's not a coincidence that in the white dominant, historically white countries that Hoffman participants are coming from, uh, we're all sharing like those lists of patterns. There's no coincidence that so many of us are experiencing the same patterns because they're coming from the same country. Hmm. You know, um, Debbie, in, in reading your book, I'm struck by, by how vulnerable you were. Was there ever, after you published it and, and put it out there, 
Was there ever a vulnerability hangover? Did you ever look at some of this stuff that you shared and say, oh, wow, were there ever cringe moments of what you revealed? I just learned the term vulnerability hangover yesterday. That's so funny that you should say that. Um, you know, there really wasn't. So the book that um, is available for sale is version 10, and it's the only book that ever got published. But I did have versions one through nine that I tested heavily. Yeah, I treated this not like a, an artwork. Uh, uh, I treated it like a tool, and I needed to know that it worked before I let it out in the world. So by the time I published it, I had had um, – you know, nine different iterations, each with focus groups and readers. And I had tested the book heavily. And I knew, I knew when it went out that my vulnerability was going to resonate with the people I needed it to resonate with. And if there were people who were going to judge it um, or judge me as weak for being vulnerable, well, those, those aren't the people I was trying to reach in the first place. So I've, I really, I both got the book ready and myself ready, I think. Uh, for what was to come through that process. One of the things you shared in the beginning, I think it was, um, that you're ready to publish it. You're all set. You've put it, put the time in. And then you realize you have more work to do. And for the next two years, is this right? For the next two years, you engage uh, a Black mentor around more work and reflection because you realized you weren't quite ready. Is that, do I have that right? Almost right. So she was a white uh, mentor. She was a, uh, she is a white woman uh, who is just brilliant, who had been with an organization called Visions that does anti-racist training work. And um, yeah, she, she and I met weekly or every other week for about two years and I paid her for her time and she really coached me and she would say, now you make this comment here, tell me more about that. And this huge conversation or revelation would unfold. And she'd say, okay, write that. Um, so she really, she really helped me open up the, what I had written to include more stories and to be even more vulnerable. She pushed me hard to be vulnerable. Like I remember, you know, I'm from an upper class background and I said, I remember there was a line in there that said something like, I have some class privilege. And she said, come on, just claim it. Just claim it. So, so how do you respond? Because I have to say, part of my part of why I was so excited for this this conversation, Debbie, is I have um, ventured into the field of of working around and and leading around the emotional work of privilege, and um, as a white man feel compelled to step into this arena as well in the undoing racism. And a couple weeks ago, I had an interaction in, in one of the groups I was facilitating where uh, a white man said, you know what, there, the number of white people th thinking and reflecting about their whiteness um, won't do a damn thing. What we need is white people to go out and connect with black people and people of color and to get out of themselves. So how do you respond to that kind of comment that, that this isn't what we need to do. We need to connect with people who look different from and are different from us. Well, um, 
there's a little bit of whiteness in the entitlement of that statement, as if I, white man, actually know the answers. And so what I always say to people is anytime you frame something in a question, even if he had just said, I'm wondering about. So as people think about entering the arena, it's so important to always stay in a curious, wondering mind, because chances are we white people do not have the answers. Uh, and I would say he's, he's on to something. So if all we do is um, try to sort of recover from the dehumanizing effects of what whiteness has done to us and understand how we in turn harm people, uh, uh, entire communities of color, how we're complicit in the system, if all we do is study that and don't translate it into action, then he's right. And yet we can't we can't possibly enter cross-racial relationships without doing immense harm if we don't understand our whiteness and the ways that we white people tend to show up. Um, and so I would say it's a both and. One of the ways I learned to think about racism from an organization called ChangeWorks, uh, and the reason I drop names is because I think it's important to give attribution in this multi-hundred-year-long struggle. Uh, but, but one really helpful framing for me is that racism, any system of oppression, classism, homophobism, any of the isms, are operating at four levels simultaneously. One is the intrapersonal. Now, that's what we're talking about when we're discovering, rooting out, you know, discovering and rooting out the whiteness in ourselves. The next, it's called the four eyes. The next eye is interpersonal. That's how whiteness shows up um, in relationships, and that can be white person within white groups or cross-racially. The third eye is institutionally. How does whiteness show up in our institutions? And the fourth eye is ideological. What is the overarching narrative about uh, that whiteness tells us, and that is that white people are superior, black and brown people are inferior, and you know each group has its own special version of of being some kind of a threat, being criminal, being lazy, um, living off the government, etc. So, um, if all we do is stick to the intrapersonal, we won't move the needle, and yet it, we can't really operate effectively in dismantling any system of oppression if we don't first understand how it lives in us and how we act it out. I love that. Uh, the four eyes, intra, inter, uh, institutional, and ideological. That's fantastic. I haven't heard that before. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to read a, a quote from your book that I found um, compelling one of the things as a Hoffman teacher that it feels fundamental to the work we do is to help people learn to be uncomfortable. It seems like, and maybe it's another white socialized uh, expectation that, that we should be comfortable. And it's part of the undoing, the unlearning that feelings are often uncomfortable. And that's where the wisdom and value in them lies. But you say, if there's a place for tolerance and racial healing, perhaps it has to do with tolerating my own feelings of discomfort that arise when a person of any color expresses emotion not welcome in the culture of niceness. I love that, the culture of niceness. It, it also has to do with tolerating my own feelings of shame, humiliation, regret, anger and fear so I can engage and not run. Would you say a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, and that actually connects very closely to the conversation we were just having um, about about understanding how to manage ourselves differently in cross-racial spaces so that we don't inflict harm. So the culture of niceness, you know, I travel all over the country and I'm telling you, every part of the country has their own version of conflict avoidance. In Minnesota, it's Minnesota nice. In California, it's we're so chill. We don't really get into that stuff. In New England, in New England, we're all up in our heads. We're thinking, you know, with all these PhDs, uh, there just is not a place in the country that hasn't come up with their own version of how to avoid the discomfort. And think of this, what a privilege to expect to move through the world without being made uncomfortable. Think about the daily discomforts. um, And sometimes, you know, including having our lives, lives taken away for our black and brown brothers and sisters. I mean, they, they have to navigate with discomfort every single day, keep their mouth shut, not rock the boat, uh, you know, be compliant, stuff their feelings. We all have to do that to a certain degree. But for our black and brown brothers and sisters, uh, there's a whole different stake. There's something different at stake. So, you know, with me, it's really just about my, a some sense of belonging. It's a matter of livelihood for people of color. And so when I started to recognize that sort of differential in terms of what was at stake, I thought, wow, like that is privilege to think that uh, I should, I should be spared discomfort, and a and a major contributing factor. So when I was a little girl, um, I was the youngest of five by six years, and I was always acting out and you know trying to get attention in really uh, ineffective ways. And I'm sure I was a totally irritating little kid. Uh, we had a saying in our house was that if you can't be pleasant and polite company, you have to go up to your room and not come out until you can be. So I spent a lot of time up in that room. Um, and I felt horrible. I felt so much shame about, you know, being cut out from, I could hear, I could hear the rest of the family having a great time. And over time I learned to stop acting out because I learned to stop feeling. I just shoved those feelings down so deep. And this is very much kind of, you know, my parents were trying to make me right for quote unquote civilized society. And they were doing the, what they'd been taught. And I, I wish though that they had gone to Hoffman and they could have, they could have said, you know, Debbie, let's talk about why you're so, what's going on with you? What's really going on? You need more attention. Okay. Let's plan some special time tomorrow. But right now, you know, this is what the family's doing. They could, we just were not capable of those kinds of conversations. We couldn't talk about emotions. And so as a result, everybody in my family learned to just shove those feelings down. And it worked pretty well for me until I was in my late 20s and I developed terrible panic attacks and this hypochondria I mentioned early. And uh, it's been the unpacking of that uh, that's helped me. This is what I mean when I say reclaiming my humanity. I, I actually know how to feel again. And it was not a quick or easy process. And it's been terif- it was literally terrifying for me to feel anger because at one point in my life, feeling anger and expressing it got me exiled. Wow. I'm thinking about your siblings as, as the youngest of five. How has your work and your deeply personal dive in, in such a public way, how have they, <laughs> how have they responded to your courageous step into this field? Uh, they have all come right along with me. 
And in fact, in one way or another, all of them uh, were doing their own work to recover from this, you know, super waspy formal childhood that we had. And so it's not like I had been on a separate path and we're all very close. So um, it's, it's been really, it, it's been an incredibly bonding experience because the levels of conversation we now have uh, are really powerful. And now they don't just unpack our childhood. You know how siblings love to get together and talk about what mom and dad did, but now we are able to talk about it in this big historical context and make so much meaning of it. Uh, I feel really blessed that my siblings came along. And it, in fact, I, I really wouldn't have, I don't think, been able to put the book out um, until they were all on the same page and some came along faster than others. So maybe that was another reason it took a full four years to get the book out in the world. You, you, you know, and, um, you talk about courageous conversation and I know in my work as a former couples therapist, I, oh, that was such a, a source of sadness, frustration, and, uh, interest for me to help couples talk more courageously with one another to, to step in. Um, and you say courageous conversation to engage long enough to get to the other side. And I'm imagining so much of this work has been holding that place of discomfort and courage to get to the other side. What does the other side look like for you? Oh, you know, I'm just having a, I'm having a memory of uh, Ed, 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 whose last name I can't remember. McClune. Ed McClune, who was my small group leader. And I went to him in an absolute panic at one point uh, in the process. I started having a terrible anxiety attacks. And I remember sitting with him and he said, tell me, you know, what the feeling is. And I described basically, I said, I feel like I, 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 I pointed to this very thin line kind of going from my, my belly button up through my throat. And I said, that's where the feeling is. And he said, well, just feel the discomfort and see if you can't grow that thin, like it was the size of a sipping straw, like a cocktail straw. That's how wide it was. He said, every time you let, just let yourself feel your feelings, let that, that, let that space grow a little bit. And so now learning to really grow and grow and grow my emotional capacity for serious discomfort and being able to just tolerate it without acting on it. I feel like I have a giant PVC pipe going up and down my body. And once I'm able to tolerate discomfort, I'm not afraid of it. I'm not afraid of conflict. I'm not afraid of being called out publicly, which happens. Um, it doesn't feel comfortable. I know though I know the pattern of discomfort. I know it comes in like a wave. I tolerate it and it goes and I learn something from it. And I, you know, once I have myself opened up that way, now my ability to connect deeply with the people in my lives and integrate the various parts of myself, it is amazing. It's, it's as close as I've gotten back to that Hoffman high that I had on day seven. Um, because I just feel, I feel so grounded and so alive and my intuition has come back, an intuition that got replaced with intellect. I feel like my intuitive self, my curious self, my creative self is just fully alive. That, I think that's what's on the other side. Wow. That, um, that I'm, I'm thinking about your marriage to Bruce when he said that it couldn't have happened to a whiter person. 
<laughs> and imagining that it's impacted your marriage and your parenting as well. Very, very much so. Yeah. And I, so when I took that course, I think my kids were 12, my two daughters who were 12 and 15. And so what their first experience was like, mom went from being this cheery, you know, homemaker and, uh, you know, kindergarten teacher to this angry activist hammering away on the keyboard in the basement. And it was a rough start. And, um, and yet, you know, the, our conversations really did try, I mean, did, really did change. And it wasn't just open conversations about race. It was the way we were all able to lean into conflict and, and the way I started to model vulnerability. And Bruce started to vo- um, model vulnerability. And then our girls started to model vulnerability. And so we, those kinds of conversations that you coached couples to have um, are the kinds of conversations that my, my little family of four are totally able to have. And again, you know, getting onto that side of it, then there's really, I don't know what's going to come our way uh, that could be bigger than what we can handle, but it feels like we could handle pretty much anything right now because we we are just so um, we're just so honest with each other. There aren't secrets. There aren't weird dynamics that are kind of tripping us up and undermining us. It's all on the you table. Know, I love that. And in in the process, we ask people to identify some of the qualities of their spiritual self. And one of the qualities I often hear from students is confidence. And, um, and as I'm listening to you, part of what I'm hearing and realizing is that confidence isn't something you look and acquire directly. It comes in part from what you're talking about. Because when I, when I think about you, as you're describing it, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay with discomfort. I'm okay with fear. And I'm okay with being called out. I just imagine you as this incredibly courageous and confident person. It doesn't mean that you don't experience awkwardness or discomfort or confusion or struggle. It just means that you're uh, uh, okay stepping into it, going towards it over and over again. Yes. And I think, so I think I would have told you I was confident. I mean, I was my father's favorite, I think. And, uh, you know, he taught me to be a white man in many ways. And I walked into the world like I could do anything I set my mind to. And that's a different kind of confidence that I feel now, uh, because there's a lot of humility that I, I have acquired along the way. And so what I think where my confidence comes from now is not so much entitlement and bravado. It comes from skill and humility. Like I just, I know, um, I, I, I know that it takes, it takes a lot of skill to be a human being and there's all of us can learn those skills. We can, we can learn to hold huge discomfort, uh, and not act it out on other people. We can learn to have really difficult conversations. We can acquire the language. We can learn the strategies. Uh, we can get the stamina that we need to not only grow ourselves, but grow each other. And I don't think those two things are separate. So, so, con- so confidence, it's interesting that that's, I'm going to think about that word. That's a word I feel like maybe left my vocabulary a while ago. 
Yeah, right. And, you know, I, I was, um, so six, roughly six years ago, you wrote the book and, and, and we have to acknowledge that in the midst of this conversation is incredible social change, things that are happening so rapidly that took so much time years ago, a lot is happening. And, um, so would you, what would you add more to your book given what's happening now or what's your, how do you frame given what you know, what's it like to witness the, the, the protests, the change, the, uh, the pain of the divisiveness that's happening? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the moment that we're in now, uh, let me back up and say as shocked as I want was to start to learn about the history of injustice in this country and the degree of, uh, privilege I had by being protected and insulated from it as a white person, as, as, as just, I was just like dumbstruck by how much I didn't know. I was also, I was equally shocked by the fact that there's basically an infrastructure across the country of people who know how to, and organizations who know how to help bring people along and the very kinds of skills and understandings I'm talking about. So I would say that, you know, starting with the death of the murder of Trayvon Martin and the formation of Black Lives Matter as a res- one of the responses to that, that infrastructure has just gotten, gotten stronger and stronger and stronger, more skilled, more populated over the last six years or seven years. And I, so I feel like the moment we're in, like we are ready. This is the moment we've all been building towards, waiting for. And there are all these people, white people around the world waking up and wanting to really understand this and stand on the, what I would consider to be the right side of history. And I am, um, I am excited it. I think it might get worse before it, it gets better, but I think something we had to break. It had to break. The system just was not going to do anything but recalibrate itself until it broke. So um, I'm excited by this moment. And would I change my book? No, I wouldn't change a thing because um, it, it is the 101. Um, it's one of the 101s for white people. There are a couple good, I also think, um, Why Are All the Blackheads Sitting Together in the Cafeteria is a good starter book. So, um, yeah, wouldn't change a thing. I am writing a second book. Um, ah, what's, but, what's that about? Well, it's really, it's more about reclaiming my humanity. It's about really understanding whiteness and the minutia so that uh, I'm going to tell my story of how I, all the little ways I discovered whiteness operating in me and how I've used positive alternatives to grow another other sides of the sides of my humanity that atrophied um, because of whiteness, like curiosity, like, um, m- you know, not just knowing how to be busy, knowing how to be present and still. So I have 40 ways I found whiteness lives in me, and that's what I'm writing about. That's fantastic. I In, in a pandemic where we don't, know so much it seems like curiosity and being able to uh withstand and tolerate the discomfort of not knowing seems like a very valuable skill and that's you know one of the ways whiteness lives in me is an intolerance for ambiguity 
um, you know, I need to know, I need to know now. And just this complete unraveling and feeling out of control without knowing. And so being comfortable with the unknown, uh, trusting the process. And yet those are, that is, that's right in the heart of it. Debbie, I'm so grateful for this conversation. What has it been like to, to reflect on the Venn diagram of both your racial justice work and your Hoffman process experience? I reflect on it a lot. It's really great to reflect on it with someone who knows what the hell I'm talking about. So, <laughs> but, Do you have many people in your community who've done the process? Uh, you know, I do in my white, in my white community. Uh, I don't have a lot of overlap between people. My Bruce has definitely, he really, he's, he is an anti-racist now himself. And uh, so Bruce and I, he went through the Hoffman process too. You know, we talk about it all the time, but I, I, I either seem to have friends who are in the anti-racist world or friends who are white and wealthy enough to have taken the Hoffman process, frankly, who are not necessarily uh, moving into the space of taking on interrogating their own whiteness, because that's where, that's where it gets really rich. Wow. The idea of, of interrogation as a, choice a positive choice for us is uh is just so compelling and provocative i'm gonna sit with that one all day debbie thank you very much yeah thank you so much for having me on Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.